High Well Trust podcast, presented by Roshin O'Hagan and Jared Dean. So welcome to this special podcast, an evening with Tony Connolly on the theme of Brexit in Ireland. The event actually took place, took place on the 21st of November to acknowledge our funder, the Executive Office Central Good Relations Fund. This was a particularly successful event. So, Jared, tell us all about the event and how did it come about? The event took place simply because there's a strong connection between Tony and his family and Hollywell Trust that we are really proud of and delighted they have. And Tony very kindly was going to do a, a book launch. His, his book is called Breggs in Ireland. And he was going to do a book launch in Derry and he said, look, I'm not going to do it anywhere else but in Hollywell. So we were delighted they host it. It's an essential conversation. We had a really big crowd at it with over 100 people at the event. Mm-hmm. But it was an excellent conversation. Tony gives an in-depth analysis of what Brexit does or has the potential to be and the potential impacts that it could have here in the Northwest. It's a great lesson. He had us all enthralled on the evening and we really hope that people enjoy it. Thank you very much, Eamon, for the introduction and for the beautiful words you said about Stephen. It did strike me that I couldn't have asked for a better venue to come back and talk about Brexit and talk about the book and the Hollywell Trust. I'd also like to thank Derry and Strabane uh, District Councils and everyone else who has made this evening happen, Eamon and, and Jared. We won't know, unfortunately, what way Stephen would have voted in the Brexit referendum, but we can probably have, have a guess. It has been strange for me in Brussels writing this book, and so often the book brought me back to Derry and people from Derry. I spoke to a senior official in the European Commission who worked with Michel Barnier when he was a regional affairs commissioner back in the early 2000s and turning up with him in Belfast and Derry and Michel Barnier trying to get to grips with the tribal grievances and complexities of Northern Ireland uh, when he was dispensing European Union funding and The work that was done at European level to fund the peace process um, was very interesting and it was a subject I didn't really know about and I had to sort of dig into that. And I discovered that the peace funding that the European Union agreed for Ireland, for Northern Ireland, uh, which amounted to about €2 billion in the end, and it's still being paid right up to 2020. After 2020, we don't know what's going to happen to it uh, necessarily. But it was a unique tranche of money that was agreed every year by the member states, either 25, uh, well, 15 when I joined, and then when I went to Brussels, then uh, went to 25, 27, 28. And every year, the EU member states would roll over this money without question. And no other, in no other country in the European Union was money like this made available. And in fact, the template of the, money, of the peace fund that was garnered for Northern Ireland, for the regional uh, parts of the border and so on. That template was then brought to Colombia. And the success of the Peace Fund at a local level in places like Derry with the Peace Bridge and also the Theatre of Witness project, which I'm sure many of you here viewed when it uh, happened uh, some years ago, that work was basically brought to Colombia as an example to show the Colombians and the FARC guerrillas in the peace process there because it was an example of how you use public funding for cross-community healing uh, and so on. And it was a great opportunity for me when I wrote the book to to revisit 
all of this information and to talk to people from Derry and to talk to people like Anne Walker, who was involved in the Theatre of Witness programme, and about how devastating Brexit was for them because Brexit did many things on the night of June the 23rd, 2016. It shattered a lot of people's hopes and expectations. It rewrote the narrative of what we think about Britain and British voters um, and it changed Britain's foreign policy irreparably. But it also had a very stark and difficult effect on people like Anne Walker, people who have worked in the peace process here, people who built the peace bridge, because that money is now at risk. I wanted to get a, a sense of the particular fragility of Derry and Donegal when we're confronted with Brexit when I came along tonight, because what, what I would like to do ultimately is talk you through where we are at the moment in the negotiations, talk you through how Ireland has pre- prepared itself at a diplomatic level, how the government has uh, defended its corner in the Brexit ref- negotiations, and also to to bring you right up to date with the European Council meeting in, in December, uh, on December 14th in Brussels, which will be, to my mind, one of the most historic events in Anglo-Irish relations. And I say that without any overstatement. I think uh, we are coming to a, an inflection point in the negotiations. And what happens in December will have major repercussions for the way Brexit plays out. And it may not all be negative. I think the Irish government is strategy is very clever and it is highly supported by the other member states. But we don't know exactly what the outcome will be, but I'll, I'll bring you through that, that whole evolution. Just a few facts and figures on, on Derry and Brexit. 78.3% of people voted for Remain in the Foyle constituency. That was the fourth highest in the UK. The cross-border region between Derry and Straban makes up 350,000 people. That's Derry, Letterkenny, Straban. If we look at uh, the population of Kilderry, which is basically, as we know it, Muffs and Johnson, Burnfoot, Bridgend, that kind of hinterland... 5,000 people were born in the north. That's 46% of the population. So these people are born in the north but live in that Donegal hinterland. And to them, the border is meaningless. It doesn't have any physical, symbolic relevance. But when Brexit happens, it is suddenly back with a vengeance. And that affects your daily commute. It affects your job. And people from... Donegal who work in the, the city council in Derry or who work in Seagate or who work in uh, any of the education spheres, their salaries have been cut by about 15% because of sterling and that's a direct result of Brexit. 61% of all the Irish people from the Republic of Ireland who go to work in Northern Ireland, in terms of workers and students, they travel to Derry and Tyrone. So there's a very big concentration of people crossing the border from the south to the north to work and study here. That concentration is, is in the northwest rather than in the centre and east of the border. Uh, the weekly crossings between Derry and Donegal in terms of Derry, Moncrana, Straban, Lifford, 326,000 per week. That's a huge amount of traffic. And again, it's second nature. It's, it's uh, unconscious. Finally, on the local angle, when we look at the way growth predictions for the future were projected up to 2030. Without Brexit, we were looking at a fairly healthy growth level in terms of employment. With Brexit, the curve flatlines completely. So we're looking at the potential of no employment growth between the current moment and 
2030 because of Brexit. Now, a lot of the cross-border growth in both commuting terms, people living, moving back and forward, you can trace that back to 1992, which was the time of the single market. And the single market basically created a zone of trade and activity, both social, economic, commercial, right across the member states. Today it's 28 member states. Now that zone of, of free trade and the absolute removal of barriers to trade and to people moving, that is basically the essence of the European Union, the single market. And the single market only works because there are rules that all the member states agree to. Because if you don't have rules, it simply won't work. Now, when we come to Brexit, Britain decided it didn't like the rules and it wanted to leave. Okay, the European Union has said that's your sovereign decision. We respect the decision. But what has happened since the referendum, we have a process of Britain, I think, being mugged by reality. Because the reality is that if you want access to the European Union single market, you have to abide by the rules. And Britain seems to want to come back to where they were, get all that good stuff, selling all their products to the European Union, getting all of the the Horizon 2020 research funding, but they don't seem to want to abide by the rules. And of course, one of the most important rules is free movement of people. And the reason they have free movement of people in the single market is because if there are parts of the European Union which are economically depressed or historically disadvantaged, you have to allow people to move from that area to another area in order to improve them themselves. And it's basically simply a way of making the single market work. It's, a, it's, a, it's an economic tool to make the single market work. People can move around. Skills can meet demand in different parts of the European Union. And that is a fundamental rule that can't be compromised on by the European Union in these negotiations. When the vote happened in 2016, the Irish government had done a fairly decent job of preparing for the referendum. Obviously, everybody had more or less hoped, even expected a Remain vote. But there had been a risk analysis done across the board in the Irish civil service, looking at all of the areas um, that would be affected by Brexit. The initial impulse, I think, of the Irish government at the time was to immediately turn to London to say, Jesus Christ, how are we going to fix this? The first meeting of officials was between the Home Office and the Department of Justice in in Dublin. That meeting took place in London, actually, because they, they were worried immediately about the common travel area. For the next couple of months, the orientation of the Irish diplomatic effort was London. There were meetings with Enda Kenny and Theresa May. There were meetings between Charlie Flanagan, the foreign minister, and Boris Johnson. There were meetings in Dublin then of David Davis and the Irish government. All of the orientation, I think, of the Irish concern at that point was to look to London to say, how are we going to fix this problem? Now, there was a growing realisation over a couple of uh, months that London didn't know actually what it wanted. They were making all the right noises about the common travel area, no hard borders, no return to the borders of the past, preserving the peace process, preserving the, the, the gains and the achievements of the Good Friday Agreement. But there was no real tangible blueprint from the British government as to how they were actually going to do that. And then there was a polite but determined message from the European Union that Ireland had to be 
on the side of the EU27. The reason they did that was because Britain had had the result of the referendum. They announced they were leaving the European Union, but they had to trigger Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty in order to formally leave the European Union. And the rule came from Brussels, okay, you cannot do anything until you trigger Article 50. So there can't be any negotiation. And there was a big concern in Brussels and other member states that because Ireland was so close to Britain historically, because there were such deep layers of bilateral relations between Ireland and between London and Dublin, that Ireland would somehow be peeled off by the British in the negotiations. The big thing we heard a lot about in Brussels was the idea of a Trojan horse, that any deal that Ireland perhaps in a surreptitious way agreed between Ireland and the UK would be used by London as a, a template for another problem. So the the problem with the Irish border is very specific, but the EU were worried that Ireland would Ireland and London would agree an understanding and then London would use that for the for the Dover Calais border, which is going to be a major problem for them in terms of customs checks, checks for um, agri food products. And the term used was a, that Britain was going to be a Trojan horse. In fact, the term Trojanized found its way into the papers that were being circulated in the European Union by negotiators, that they didn't want any solution in Ireland to be Trojanized by Britain. So what that says to me is that the EU were very, very tuned in and aware of the complexities of the Irish-British relationship when it came to Brexit. But that was because the Irish government had been to the EU very quickly and very determinedly in those first, in that first six months. And in the early part of this year, the Irish government adopted a very subtle but very distinct change of, of strategy that they were turning the aircraft carrier around and they were firmly and unambiguously on the side of the European Union in these negotiations. And they were getting phone calls from British officials uh, saying, so how do you think uh, the idea of a kind of an associate customs relationship between Britain and the EU, how do you think that's going to go down? And they said, sorry, we can't tell you. You know, we, And anyway, what is that? You know, What is uh, a customs partnership? Nobody knows what that is. In, in a parallel sense between, I guess, January and April, in preparation for the triggering of Article 50, which would start the negotiations, the EU 27 gave Michel Barnier a mandate and the mandate was, okay, this is how you're going to do the negotiations. These are the guidelines. This is the blueprint of what we want you to achieve. And Ireland's big challenge, I think, at that point was to get the Irish case into those negotiating guidelines. Now, these are guidelines that are agreed by the EU27 at a European Council. I mean, they are legally as solid and as solemn as you can get. And chapter, uh, paragraph 10 in those guidelines is the paragraph on Ireland. Now, the language in that, when you read it, you think, okay, it says they want to protect the Good Friday Agreement and no hard border, fine. But the work that goes into that language is incredibly detailed and hard fought. And Irish and EU officials had worked for months to get this language right. And Ireland, I think, wanted a much more explicit determination from the EU that they would have no border in Ireland. I mean, the border that's down the road. I mean, we all here know about the impacts of the border, of Brexit on the border. 
And Ireland wanted to have a declaration in the guidelines that would say we are not going to have any physical border in Ireland. But the EU side, and I, I've learned this from senior officials in the European Council who do the negotiations, they sensed that Ireland wanted the problem to go away, that Brexit was an awful, unpleasant thing, and just by wishing it away, it would go away. And they had to say to Ireland, we are completely cognizant of the Irish issue, we are sympathetic, we will do what we can to preserve all of the things you want to preserve in Ireland, but we cannot promise you that Brexit will not have a negative effect. The world will change because of Brexit. So there are key words in there which, to the naked eye, don't really mean much, but to uh, someone like me who's sort of tutored in this and, and gets the gen from the officials uh, you know, on a weekly basis, there's a line in there which says flexible and imaginative solutions will be, cry- will be required with the aim of avoiding a hard border. The Irish wanted flexible and imaginative solutions to avoid a hard border. The European officials said, uh-uh, we've got to put in with the aim of. Okay, Now that phrase was fought over for two weeks by Irish diplomats and European officials. But having said all that, it's in there. It's in lights. It's in the European Union negotiating guidelines. Now, whenever the Brexiteers say, well, we've compromised on citizens' rights, we've compromised on money, you know, now it's time for the EU to compromise. Well, the EU doesn't compromise on the way it's structured the EU is a body of law. As, as I said before, the whole idea of having a single market is that you have 28 countries all following the same rules. For that reason, the EU is a stickler for rules. It's a stickler for treaties. And the message has come back time and again that Britain can't expect the EU to bend the rules. And that is why subtly and deliberately in the months since August, the Irish government have been working very closely with the European uh, Commission task force. They're in touch with them eight times a day by phone. Now, Britain is only in touch with the task force when there's a negotiating round in Brussels. So the Irish government have an open door on the task force. Another subtle thing that they've been doing since the summer is after the first round of negotiations in June, Everybody on the EU side, including Ireland, realised that Britain didn't actually know what the Good Friday Agreement was about. They didn't fully understand the, de- the complexities of it, how its effects kind of ripples out across Ireland in so many ways. Its impact is multi-layered. So what they did was they said, OK, EU officials and British officials will have to do a mapping exercise And what they will do is they will go through the Good Friday Agreement and map out every single part of the Good Friday Agreement where there is a cross-border activity and where that cross-border activity might be impacted by Brexit. Now, the Good Friday Agreement has seven areas of cross-border cooperation. But when they went through all of those areas and looked, when you break those areas down and see where the impact of Brexit happens, they found... 142 areas of cross-border cooperation where the cooperation is facilitated or underpinned or enhanced by the fact that both the UK and the Republic of Ireland are in the, in the European Union. So what they did was as they went through all 142 areas of cooperation, it became clear to the Irish government and the European Commission that the only way to 
limit the disruption of all of these areas is to keep Northern Ireland in the customs union and the single market. I mean, it's the only way of doing that. So that is why Friday week ago, there was a paper leaked by the task force which spelled out in very clear, explicit terms that Britain must provide sufficient progress in the negotiations on financial, the financial settlement, on EU citizens' rights and on Ireland before they can qualify for phase two of the negotiations. On Ireland, this mapping process has been happening. They talked for the first time about an all-island economy, and this was brand new language in the negotiations, an all-island economy. Now, this is like strong stuff. Because the Good Friday Agreement doesn't necessarily spell out an all-island economy, but it's written down in this task force paper. Now, my understanding is that the task force paper was deliberately written for external consumption. There was not a similar paper on financial, the financial settlement, the bill Britain has to pay when it leaves the EU. There was no paper on citizens' rights like this. This is a one-page document which spelled out how the Irish border issue should be solved. And basically what the, what the paper does is it says to Britain, OK, Britain, you have agreed that there should be no hard border in Ireland. You have signed up to the European Union's guiding principles. That was a paper that came out in September. You say you don't want a hard border. If you follow the, the logic of the mapping exercise across the 142 areas of, of cross-border cooperation, they said it's essential, surely, that the only way to preserve all of this north-south cooperation, as mandated by the Good Friday Agreement, of which Britain is a co-guarantor. The only way to preserve all these things is for Northern Ireland to remain in the customs union and single market. Now, they didn't spell it out like that. What they said was there can't be any regulatory divergence between the north and the south. Now, I, I put this question to a senior. She's in the legal services of the European Commission. Now, they, these, these people are like they live and breathe EU law. So I said to her, what does that mean exactly, no regulatory diversion? She says, well, what that means is that Britain must agree that Northern Ireland must follow the, the, the rules that govern the single market and the customs union, but its membership of the customs union by any other name, it can't mean anything else legally. Now, just to give you an example of, of, of how they have come to this conclusion, if you take cross-border health, which is a key aspect of the Good Friday Agreement, think of the number of times that EU law impacts upon cross-border health. You have common recognition of health qualifications on both sides of, the, sides of the border because Britain and Ireland are members of the EU. You have common standards for ambulance drivers. You have common standards for medicines because the medicines on both sides of the border have been approved by the European Medicines Agency, which, by the way, has just been taken out of London, as we know, to Amsterdam. And across a whole range of, of, of medical activity, You've got people in, in the north who go to, to, um, to, the, to Dublin for, for cancer, treatment, cancer treatment for children in Crumlin uh, Hospital. That's just one example of where, once you break it down into the detail, you'll find that EU law affects so many things. The people in Brussels who are doing the negotiations, they, they, they know intimately what goes on in Alton Gelvin, because they've read my book, obviously. LAUGHTER um, uh, but, but when this paper was published uh, a couple of weeks ago, it, it was absolutely dynamite. 
there was a an immediate reaction from David Davis saying, you know, we're not going to accept anything that undermines the uh, union between Northern Ireland and the and Great Britain. I I did some work the week after the paper was was published to see exactly how this paper had kind of evolved, how it had come about, and what the reaction was. And I was told that yes, the European the, on, on the European Council side, and you know, the European Council is the institution which represents member states. So the member states, obviously, they're, they're in charge of the Brexit negotiations. They give Michel Barnier the mandate. They were not expecting the paper, but they were not concerned about it. And the, and the bottom line was that the European Union 26 will take their lead from Ireland on this issue. So while... The Tory press and the DUP and the Conservative Party were crying treason and blackmail. The fact of the matter is that Ireland has a de facto veto on this issue. And the EU27 will take their lead from Ireland. And if people have asked me, well, what happens if they sort out the financial issue first and then they get some deal on the citizens' rights, that will leave Ireland kind of as, as, as a somewhat exposed issue. And my understanding from, uh, this is only the understanding I have from talking to Irish and, and European officials, is that ultimately the EU will show preference to a member state as opposed to a third country, which is what Britain is going to become. We now have a couple of weeks before the December summit when Britain is expecting to be invited into phase two of the negotiations, which is trade and future relationship. And they, have, they won't get over that line until they satisfy the three key issues, financial settlement, citizens' rights and Ireland. It was clear from remarks made by Michel Barnier in Brussels yesterday that the EU Commission's task force's position on Ireland is identical to the Irish government's. So we are heading down the barrel of a confrontation in December whereby Britain will have to decide, is it going to grasp the nettle on Ireland if it wants to, to qualify for phase two of the negotiations, which it's desperate to do and which its business community is desperate to do as well? Uh, or will they say no and then we have no progress into the next phase and then that becomes amber light flashing time because the deal has to be done by the end of March 2019 businesses in the UK need to know a year in advance what they're going to do if there's no deal in December then they may have to take the decision to move their operations out of the UK so that's why everything hinges on the December council and that's why I've brought the discussion up to this point because this is the inflection point on Brexit and everything will hinge on that and I will take questions after I finished which I'm going to do now and thanks very much This Monday the Hollywell podcast presents another special episode as Dr Martin Stern a survivor of the Holocaust shares his incredible childhood experiences and stories of the remarkable people he met during his time on the concentration camp Twelve years ago, the National Holocaust Centre people decided that, uh, realised I'd retired as a doctor, and uh, they decided they could use me. They invited me up there and they said, stand on that stage and tell them your story, pointing to a room full of pulpits. 
And I very quickly learned a couple of things. One, it's not my story. I was a kid. I don't ever remember doing anything other than what I was told or something completely inconsequential. That, to my mind, is not a story. Around me were adults who did extraordinary things. That is a story. It's their story I'm telling. I'm just left alive to tell it. The Dr. Martin Stern Special, available for free download and streaming from Monday, December 11th on SoundCloud.com, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher Radio. Search for Howell Podcast. Uh, I would like to run past you, Tony, two thoughts that I have. Mm. Uh, Sorry, Mm. Paul Gosling. Um, A brilliant presentation, by the way. Thank you. The first is that it seems to me that uh, most of the government, even including people like Boris Johnson, didn't have any clear idea about what they wanted in terms of an outcome of Brexit. (coughs) But there was one group of people that would call themselves intellectuals that were economists that did have a clear idea. And because they were the only people with a clear idea about what they wanted from Brexit, they're in the driving seat. And those people are people that don't basically want an agreement, but do want a free trade arrangement where basically the UK leads a new British Empire idea Mm. of free trade. That leads into my second thought, which is the fact that the John Major and Tony Blair made commitments that the UK had no strategic interest, or the British government had no strategic interest in Northern Ireland remaining part of the UK. That seems to me to have been reneged upon by what Theresa May has been saying and what David Davis has been saying in terms of their response to the paper that you, that you mentioned. And therefore, the British government either effectively reneges on the Good Friday Agreement or basically it, it yields on a, a solution. And it seems to me within that context, it has to go for a free trade arrangement, which means somehow or another we have a hard border. I wonder what your, your thought was on that. I suppose everybody will have a different way of interpreting the Good Friday Agreement. Well, I think the British government would say that their position on Northern Ireland is consistent with the Good Friday Agreement. In fact, British negotiators brought the Good Friday Agreement into the negotiating room the first week, which the Irish officials found hilarious because the Irish officials had been schooling the European negotiators for uh, the best part of a year on the detail of the Good Friday Agreement. This is a a kind of an existential scrap over what the Good Friday Agreement means. And in fact, when unionists have said that the idea of Northern Ireland somehow remaining inside the customs union and single market, that, that dilutes the union, the Irish government says that's nonsense. There is nothing in that idea which is contrary to the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement in terms of the consent principle is uh, watertight and that is the foundation of Northern Ireland's constitutional position. How that that connects to your question about um, no no selfish or strategic interest, I mean, I think everybody falls back on the Good Friday Agreement as their default position. But what the problem is that with Brexit, both sides are, are interpreting it in slightly different ways. Um, the Irish government is saying the Good Friday Agreement almost requires us to have no regular, no uh, regulatory divergence on the island of Ireland if you want to have a no border. And having no border is the essence of the Good Friday Agreement from a nationalist perspective. The British government will see it as um, you know, something that guarantees unionists that the union, their union will remain intact unless there is a, a majority in favour otherwise. 
The problem with a free trade agreement um, is that the Brexiteers that you talk about, they their understanding of trade and the European Union was completely uh, false. They they didn't get it. I mean, David Davis is on record as saying that after Brexit, he'll go straight to Berlin to negotiate a free trade agreement with Germany. Now, <laughs> Germany does not conduct free trade agreements with anybody. Germany is a member of the EU. The European Commission conducts trade agreements on Germany's behalf and on Malta's behalf, on Ireland's behalf. And I think when I say, you know, Britain, Brexiteers being mugged by reality, they they are actually now realising that not only do they not have the access to the single market that they have at the moment, even if they have a free trade agreement, there are 50 free trade agreements that the EU has negotiated with outside countries, third countries around the world, big trading blocks like Korea. They're negotiating one with Japan at the moment. They're, they've just completed one with Canada. Britain automatically falls out of those trade agreements because it leaves the EU. Now, Britain is going to those countries and saying, well, okay, we want to uh, just kind of copy and paste what we have with the EU, uh, what we enjoy with the EU. Uh, with North, go to North Korea and say, okay, that trade agreement with the EU, we just, just like include us in that. And it, it's called grandfathering. It's, it's a recognized term in, in uh, world trade organization uh, jargon. The trouble is that when Korea negotiated a trade agreement with the EU, they were negotiating with 28 countries. So in order for Korea to access those 28 markets, they had to make big sacrifices. So for them to access the British market via the EU trade agreement, they had to to give European companies big access to Korea. Now, if Korea is then approached by Britain to say, well, we'd like to just continue things the way they are, Korea will say, yeah, not, uh, not so fast because we took a hit on accessing your market. So now that you're out of the EU, we'd like some concessions, please. The other problem is, um, and it's, it gets very complicated, it's, it's, it's called rules of origin. So Korea might sell stuff to the EU, but the, the machines that Korea sells to the EU might have components that are made in China. So it's, there's not really a Korean product. But under the rules of origin component of a trade agreement, the EU will say, okay, well, for, 40% of your goods have to be Korean-made, or 60%. Now, what happens to goods that the UK want to sell to Korea uh, if parts of those goods come from China and it's not covered by the rules of origin uh, agreement in the world trade uh, system? Again, it's going to be problematic. So I think the UK is going to face a lot of very uncomfortable decisions when it comes to what it replaces in terms of free trade with what it has at the moment as a, as a full member of the EU. Hello. I would like to thank you for the speech. Uh, my name is Kevin. Uh, Kevin? Yeah, okay. uh, Kevin Breston. Uh, I was just wondering, how much inspiration do you think that the the actual British government would take from the Good Friday Agreement in terms of uh, their own situation of being outside that European bloc? I mean, you, you spoke about associate membership before, but... Yeah. It does seem that strand-free bodies themselves could effectively, while not being a legislative body, may yeah. certainly coordinate some of these divergences that uh, would arise in the, the sort of UK, Republic Ireland sort of context, or indeed even Northern Ireland, Great Britain context. There is, there is the possibility that, that Britain will, you know, if, if it gets into the kind of goal mouth 
uh, of the scrap on, on Ireland and say, well, the Good Friday Agreement um, doesn't just facilitate north-south cooperation. There's also east-west. So they, they might... I mean, this this was one of the kind of somewhat obscured outworkings of the Good Friday Agreement was was that because the Unionists didn't like the Northern Ireland having a... or the Republic having a presence in Northern Ireland, they insisted that the Republic would have to open consulates in Cardiff and Edinburgh as well. Again, I mean, it, it's it's part of the the mechanism and the genius of the Good Friday Agreement that it, it just it just kind of raises the lens a little bit above the landscape and allows conflicting parties to find some kind of accommodation. And that was a that was just a kind of a, a gimmick in a, in a way to keep unionists happy that that Cardiff then was regarded as on a similar footing to Northern Ireland in terms of its relationship with with Dublin. In in terms of the Good Friday Agreement facilitating stuff in in the Brexit negotiations, that's certainly the the view of the SDLP. I mean, Mark Durkin has spoken about this, that Strand 2, which is the north-south component of, of the Good Friday Agreement, is underutilised. It's a, it's a vehicle for north-south cooperation. There's a whole load of things you could actually put in there in terms of, of, of EU activity that, that I mentioned in, in the talk there. If you bring that into the Good Friday Agreement, it might make everybody happy because everybody has signed up to the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, I think that's the Irish government's view on that is that if you if you do that, then unionists will want, again, they'll want to, to mimic those structures on an east-west basis. A whole lot of things I'd like to ask you, Tony. Thank mm. you very much for your thoughts and uh, sharing your experiences. One thing I'd like to ask, um, given the way it's playing out, given the challenges the British government have had in the negotiations, given the recent developments of losing the medical facilities or medical centre, the European Banking Authority to Paris, etc., is there a possibility that there will be a vault fast, there will be a change of heart at some point in the next 12 months. They'll say, listen... I was we, wondering when that question was going to we come got, up, yeah. We got this completely yeah. wrong. You know, it could be by way of yeah. a change of government, whatever, but yeah. do you think that that's a, that is a possibility? I mean, a few months ago, I would have said probably not, and I still think it's unlikely. But, I mean, I was listening to a podcast on the Financial Times last night by Professor Tim Langford, who's an expert on food. And he was just spelling out the implications for Britain on food. I mean, already the price of food has has risen in the UK because of sterling. There there is food rotting in the fields because a lot of Eastern Europeans who picked that food have gone home. If you get into a tariff situation, food is the most expensive tariff that, that there is because countries generally protect their agriculture sectors and the way you do that is you have tariffs on food. So you could see a scenario if it's a hard Brexit, you could see a scenario, and even even if it's a soft Brexit, where where basic commodities that Britain enjoys, and Britain is a foodie nation, we all know it, those products may not be available, or they might be ex- prohibitively expensive. Britain is only 60% self-sufficient on food. That's why... They import so much food from Ireland, beef and dairy, particularly cheddar. They haven't been self-sufficient in food since the middle of the 18th century. During the empire, they, they got the empire to feed them. Uh, and it was, a, it was a cheap food policy. Now, if they pursue the cheap food policy, then that means they will want to do trade deals with America, with Australia, with New Zealand. But if they do that, 
then they will be binding themselves to the regulatory orbit of America. And we know what that means, chlorinated chicken, hormones in beef, GMO foods. And they will not then be able to sell their products to, to the European Union. And that will actually, unfortunately, mean if they do follow that cheap food policy, unfortunately, that will mean a hard border in Ireland because the Republic of Ireland will be under a strict food regulation regime over the border, five miles down the road, they will be, uh, it'll be, it'll be different in, in Northern Ireland and, and Britain, unless, of course, Northern Ireland stays in the regulatory framework. I mean, when you think this, this stuff through in terms of food, when Leo Varadkar says there can't be any regulatory div- divergence, you know, it, it's a technical term, but it actually starts, you can start to see how it makes sense, you know. And I think the funny thing is that Britain will be, like Ireland and the Irish question is in a sense binding Britain to the European orbit. It's, it's narrowing its options. And I think that's just, this is a kind of a, fa- from a historical point of view, this is a fascinating sort of turn of events. So my, my feeling now is that the more voters in the UK start to realise in graphic detail what Brexit actually means, who knows, you know, who knows. Like I saw a graph today charting voter sentiment on Brexit. Was it the, was it the right thing or the wrong thing? And the, 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 you have and then don't know is way down here. But the right thing and wrong thing, they're, they're two lines. It's like Man City and Man United. It's like they're just like neck and neck. But in the last couple of months, the the green line has gone up. There's a gap has opened, and and the people are beginning to question it. So I don't know. It's everything's possible in, in politics. Just in your sequencing, you didn't really sort of touch on it, but I'm just interested in your view and your role of the, the European Parliament on all of this, because mm. uh, both now, I suppose, in this sort of real significant period and into the future, because like there is a draft resolution yeah. for the Parliament circulating at the minute, which will yeah. impact on the, the Council decision in yeah. 14 to 15, so I'd just be curious to see how you've... Uh, on, your, on your view about the Right, OK, thanks, Connor. Um I, we spoke on the phone a few weeks ago, I think, didn't we? That's right, yeah. Um, okay, just, just to just to kind of give people a quick bluffer's guide to, to the EU, you have you have the European Commission, which proposes legislation. You have the European Council, which is the member states, and they then go through the legislation or the proposal, and then eventually the European Parliament and the Council and the Commission sort of have a big scrap and the, the legislation is then adopted by the member states. In the Brexit negotiations, the European Council is really the lead. It's the member states. It's, it's, and, and, well, the European, it's confusing. The Council of the European Union is all the ministers from all the member states. The European Council is the formation of the leaders, all t- the 28 prime ministers, basically. The 28 prime ministers have given Michel Barnier the mandate to negotiate Brexit, the reason Barnier is chosen to be the frontline negotiator is because the European Commission are the experts. Like They kind of stand over the body of law. They know everything about every regulation and they know everything about what Brexit will mean for Britain. So in the, in the Brexit negotiations, the European Parliament has to give its final approval to the whatever is agreed in probably October next year. Um, now, at that point, the member states will have done a deal on the divorce, on the withdrawal agreement with Britain. They won't have done the trade agreement. That will not be done for several years. Now, the member states will 
say, okay, we ha have adopted an, an agreement on the way Britain withdraws itself. It unscrambles 43 years of laws. Now we hand it over to the European Parliament. Now the question is, would the European Parliament veto the agreement? Um, it's difficult to see them going that far. That would be a nuclear option because the, the European Parliament is made up of the political families that are in power in Europe. Um, and the question is, would those political families like the European People's Party, the, the Socialists, um, the Greens, the, the Liberals, would they vote against what their leaders in the member states have, have agreed in a solemn uh, treaty? I, I think it's unlikely. Having said that, the Parliament is, as you say, is issuing um, resolutions all the time on Brexit, putting the screws on the issue of citizens' rights, on the issue of Ireland, on the issue of the financial settlement. So you, people say that the Parliament is like a kind of a bad cop to Michel Barnier. Michel Barnier in the negotiations say, you know, if, I, I'm never going to get that through the Parliament, you know, unless you sign up to this, that and the other. So I think I think the Parliament's influence is, is I think you're right, it is underrated. But I think when it comes to the actual vote at the end of it, I, I'm not sure the Parliament would, would I mean, because the, the, the big... The, the big majorities in the parliament are the, are the Socialists and the European People's Party. And, and they're the parties in, in, gov in most governments. And they're, they're not going to turn around and, you know, there'll be a, like a whip system. They, they'll be basically told to accept. And, and you can't accept parts of the deal. You have to accept the whole thing or reject the whole thing. So I think it's unlikely. Thank you very much, Tony. You yeah. must be exhausted. Just uh, getting my, started. Yeah. My name is Mary Casey. Hello, Mary. Um, and my uh, experience being in the Harvard Club of Ireland and listening to Bertie Ahern talking in, in a very relaxed way about Ireland's confidence and Ireland uh, and, and uh, Britain can make the mistake, but we're within Europe and mm. we're confident in terms of what we want out of it. And especially uh, in relation to to, if we could be specific, the Good Friday Agreement and mm. Mark Durkin's proposal on Strand 2 mm -hmm. and all of that. Yeah. Um, and therefore, the innovative solutions now that need to be arrived at in relation to peace keeping, peace building, and making sure there's a win-win situation mm. within the Northern Ireland context mm. must be something that goes east-west and north-south, mm. not just Strand 2, north-south, mm. but yeah. also east-west. Yeah. So this idea of uh, a tripartite arrangement between uh, in, within an all-Ireland economy, mm. uh, a tripartite arrangement between London, uh, Dublin and Belfast, um, is that something that uh, would save Theresa May's bacon because she's relying on the uh, DUP for votes uh, in Westminster? Do you feel that th that, uh, that that might be an innovative solution within the all-Ireland economy uh, mm. going forward? Primarily, how do you avoid a hard border? And if we break it down, the reason you would have a hard border is because of customs and... Uh, animal and animal food, animal feed, and the whole agri-food kind of spectrum. That that's what gives you a hard border. I mean, the, the food thing is interesting because it, it it gets nobody ever mentions it. But like the moment Britain becomes a third country, there are checks on animal products coming in. That's just that's just not negotiable. Obviously, the Irish government 
is kind of front-loading the northern issue in in its kind of wish list because it gets sympathy, it gets understanding, it gets gets the attention of the twenty-seven, of the twenty-six. But there's no doubt that at the back of the Irish government's mind is east-west trade, like the the the, the north of Ireland as a an export market for the republic is not that significant. It's small. Because if you look at the way the Irish economy is broken down, it's like there's a huge uh, f- pharmaceutical sector, f- a huge, huge high-tech sector. All that stuff is made in Ireland and sent around the world, sent to the European Union. It's not sent to Northern Ireland. But there, I- there is, of course, agri-food trade going back and forward. There, there's a lot of SME activity along the border. So Ireland does have a huge vested interest in Britain remaining itself as a whole in the customs union. And Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney keep saying this. And the reason they're saying it is not just for the Northern Ireland question, but it's also because they want trade across the Irish Sea. We sell 270,000, sorry, we, the Irish Republic, sells 270,000 tonnes of beef to the UK. That's worth 2.7, 2.4 billion euro a year. 2.4 billion beef alone, okay? We sell 50% of our dairy to the UK. We sell 70% of our, che- our cheddar cheese to the UK. So the Irish government wants that trade to continue unhindered and they want Britain to stay in the customs union. I, it's hard for me standing here to divine what Theresa May, how she looks at this from a tripartite point of view. Because she's being torn apart by by the civil war in her party, because there are people half the cabinet want a hard Brexit. They want out into the world. They want to be trading freely with uh, the rest of the world. They don't really care about Ireland and the Irish border. They they just don't, and they don't want to be constrained by the Irish question. So, in answer to your question, yes, from an Irish point of view, a tripartite kind of harmony, if you like, on in, in the outcome is is what they want, but. But how Theresa May sees that in the kind of, you know, the the kind of metrics of of, of the Good Friday Agreement, it's a bit hard for me to say. I don't know if that answers your question. Um, my name's Tina Gardner. I'm a councillor with the STLP for the Waterside in right. Derry. Um, my question is very local. Mm. Um, our current situation, where we have no executive, I'm just interested in your thoughts on. It seems to me that it's um, a disaster locally when it's coming to health budgets and Mm. um, infrastructure and trying to move things forward. But there's a wee bit of me is wondering um, the absence of two anti-European parties who have the mandate at the minute that would be in in Stormont. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Is there... Which um, parties would you... Uh, uh, um, well, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know, we have, we have... Sinn Féin and DUP have the mandate at the minute. Obviously, right. DUP would, would have been for Brexit, but Sinn Féin also have a long history of being anti-EU treaties yeah. to this point. So I'm just wondering, are we possibly um, better off having not having them negotiating or, or in the picture at this stage and, and putting all our, having the Irish government, all the eggs in that basket. Um, yeah. It's a genuine question. I'm just yeah. wondering on your thoughts because yeah. I, I don't know whether it would be a help or a hindrance on this one thing to have that particular executive up and running. Mm. I mean, you, you keep hearing um, all the time from the Irish government about how important it is for the executive to to get up and, and running. And you hear Michel Barnier saying that as well. 
I talked to one of the task force members when I was writing the book, and she had just come back from a um, a trip organised by the Irish government to the border, and Michelle Barnier was there as well. So I said to her, like, what, what were your impressions? She's, well, yeah, you know, so much traffic had been coming from Ireland into the task force office in Brussels, like every organisation you can imagine got access. Uh, so she knew the complexities of Ireland, but she said, yeah, I stood at the border, and I looked over the border, you know, and I just felt it's missing, you know, the North is missing in this debate. And the key reason is that you know, Britain is going to need to make some fundamental choices about Northern Ireland if it wants to avoid a hard border. And you need political buy-in. I mean, the EU, of course, is a body of law, but it's, it, 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 it functions on politics as well. And the EU doesn't want to force any particular scenario on Britain if they know it's not going to get political buy-in. I talked to Phil Hogan, actually, the Irish commissioner, and he said, look, it kind of suits the DUP not to be in Stormont because they don't have to take any electoral flack for doing x y or z on brexit or or for the impact brexit has because they're not they're not in the executive the question of will the dup kind of pull the plug on theresa may if she tries to force this issue on on northern ireland well if the dup pull pull the british government down then you have an or if 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 she is replaced as a leader you're more more or less likely to have a an election in the uk and jeremy corbyn could win that and so the DUP then are looking at a Jeremy Corbyn, Prime Minister in number 10. So Sinn Féin's, I don't know, Connor, you might have a better idea, but I mean, Sinn Féin's uh, position, again, is a bit ambiguous. Um, I mean, there is a suspicion that, you know, Brexit has completely altered the debate on a united Ireland. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And I've written in the book about how Enda Kenny managed to get this unity declaration into the minutes of the meeting in, on April 29th. Um, that was an incredible achievement, I think, diplomatically by the Irish government, and I've, I've kind of written chapter and verse on how he did that. But if you have a scenario where Britain is outside the EU and it's a disaster and there is then an open opportunity for Northern Ireland to get back into the EU simply by having a united Ireland. Well, when I say simply, I mean, that, that, would, uh, <laughs> that, would, that would be a, you know, that is a... That is delineated. That is set out now in in the uh, in in the in the in the negotiating guidelines. It's in there, uh, and it, well, it reflects the Good Friday Agreement. But that has changed the debate, I think, completely. Hello, Tony. Um, my name's Sinead McLaughlin, and thank you very much. And I have read your book, and it's very concise and very to the point. And I would recommend it as well to thank everyone. What I would like to ask you or ask for your observations, uh, there's a lot of conversations going on now about Northern Ireland could be the bridge. Mm. And there's also conversations about um, the, the fact that we may look at sector by sector uh, customs union. Is that just pie in the sky? Or... Um, is that something that could be considered, but particularly um, the the agri food, the the problem with the agri food, like it's it's uh, it, it just it's can't be it can't be fixed unless we are in the customs union in the single market. Yeah. And so, 
would that be a consideration in European terms? Uh, Wait, when you say happen? Northern Ireland is a bridge to, to what exactly? or what? Well, Northern Ireland, we in mm. Northern Ireland, a mm. lot of commentators, uh, mm. I work in the, the business community, mm. but a lot of uh, businesses are saying, oh, if we got in, mm. uh, in Ireland mm. um, to remain in the customs union, mm-hmm. then that would be a real uh, dividend for, for, for Northern yeah. Ireland. It yeah. would improve our economy. Yeah. It would give us a differentiation in that. Yeah. Is that possible to have that type of uh, special deal or unique deal or, or, or is that just here's hoping? Well, if you follow it logically, if, mm-hmm. if Northern Ireland stays in the customs union and single market and Britain, the Great Britain is, is outside, I mean, if you follow that through logically, you could have a bonanza of companies in Britain who would say, well, let's just jump over and locate in Northern Ireland and we are in the single market and the customs union. They, they could open up a whole... I mean, that, that is something that uh, officials in Brussels are kind of having to think through because, like, you can't just say, oh, Northern Ireland should stay in the Customs Union single market without actually following what that means logically. Now, I think privately... <laughs> don't tell anybody, but... Uh, there is a theory that if Northern Ireland stayed in the Customs Union for a period of time, then it would have a persuasive effect on Britain to remain in a couple of years' time that they might. See, Ireland could, you know, solve, could save Brexit. And, you know, that, that, is, a, that, that is the way some people in the Commission are thinking strategically, you know, that, uh, that you know, it could be a kind of an exemplar for, for Great Britain. Yeah, Hong Kong comes up as well uh, as, as, as a possible, because it, it has its own customs arrangement separate from, from the Chinese mainland. But... Having a sector by sector in a customs union is not the commission hears that they just say how is that going to work? It's against WTO rules in any case. Yeah. I mean there is this talk of of having all islands agriculture, um, so you would have the north in the regulatory sphere as the same as the south, and you would have that would then facilitate movements of food north and south. But again, you're going to have to have checks. You'd have to have checks in Larne and Belfast, and those checks would have to be carried out by. I mean, who is going to stand in Larne? and ensure that European rules are being followed when food is coming in. There'll have to be people from the Irish Republic. So you can imagine people from the Irish Republic in Larne. I mean, that, but that's the... Uh, I mean, if you follow this logic, that's what, that's what would have to happen. You know, because, because the, the, the rules governing food are extremely complicated. I mean, you have you, every abattoir in Ireland and the UK has to have a vet that's, that's approved by the EU. Every abattoir has to be approved by the EU, so... Stuff coming from British uh, abattoirs to to Northern Ireland would have to be checked at the border uh, in, in Larne or Belfast or whatever. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages on Facebook. Look for the Hollywell Trust, and on Twitter, it's at Hollywell Tea.